I'm a grateful, enthusiastic, and very, very active member of the Alman family groups, and my name is Jack. Good morning, San Antonio. I'm really delighted to be here. I want to thank you for your hospitality. I I love coming to Texas. I, it's been my privilege to come down here a few times uh, for work and a few times for service commitments. I love coming down here. I love the way that your programs honor each other and, and cooperate with each other. And uh, I, I don't see that everywhere that I go, but I see it in Texas and some other places. And it's a privilege and an honor that you guys asked me to come down here and be with you this weekend. I've been treated very well. I want to thank Bob for picking me up at the airport. And he's a, he's an Alamon like I'm an Alamon. He's in all the way. I uh, And he needs to be. <laughs> you know, we were getting ready to go to dinner last night, and I get to come to a few these and usually I'm at the mercy of the AA committee and they want to have dinner before the meeting and you know I'm an Al-Anon I got to get there get done get here early check out you know survey the room make sure the alcoholics have set it up right and uh, you know see where the exits are and just get all my ducks in a row and you know they'll come in and say the meeting's at 7 30 we'll pick you up for dinner at 6 45 you know and I'm going oh my god so he's what time you want to go to dinner I said well I'm pushing my luck a little bit I said how about six o'clock he said how about 5 30 as I'm home I'm, I, I'm in good hands He's got my back. I'm good to go. And I want to thank Vanji for asking me to come and uh, be with you. I haven't met Vanji yet. Vanji, are you here? Put a hand up. Hi, Vanji. Vanji, I don't remember if we talked on the phone or if it was an email or something, but I'd just come back from Florida, and I, I think it was an email. I got an email that said, uh, I just listened to your tape from Florida. You just spoke in Florida, and we're really excited to have you come out. We'd love you to come to Texas and speak at SA. And I'm, I'm thinking... Sex Addicts Anonymous. <laughs> I've been ratted out to SA, and now I've got to join another 12-step group, and the next thing in my head is, i really got to tone down my talk. I, I, I'm not doing that in a general way thing very well if they're inviting me to speak at SA, and I send her an email, and she says, oh, it's, it's uh, SA, San Antonio. I guess in California, you say LA, you know it's Los Angeles, and in Texas, I guess everybody knows it's SA, but you got when you call them folks in California, give them a little heads up, will you, because they may start... Start running. And, uh, and then I corresponded with Bob via email. I knew right away that I had a soulmate in Bob that we were going to get on fine. He's involved in service like I am. I continue to be, I told you I'm very, very active and that's exactly what I am. I still have commitments. I don't believe in giving all the commitments to the newcomers because when you do, the old timers don't have anything to do and they wander off. I make sure I've got my job first and then I drag some of them along with me. And I, I've had a, you know, I've had the alibus since about my second year in Alabama big enough for me and about six of my because when I get a commitment, we all get a commitment. We go out to convention planning meetings and stuff. And, you know, it's, and it's kept me here and kept me involved and, and kept me on the road that I need to be on. And, and I've been to San Antonio several times before, a couple of times for work, once before and once after recovery. I'm sure if there's long-timers in the room, if you saw me going by, you were saving me a seat already, going, oh, there's a sick one. We're going to get him eventually. Because I did some pretty sick living towards the end. And, the, the first trip that I made down here, I was working, I'm working in the motion picture business, and I was staying over at the St. Anthony's Intercontinental, I guess it's still named that, and Travis Park's right out front. And, and when I had gotten there, Travis Park was like a lawn and some trees and no shrubs. I guess they were trying to chase the homeless folks out of there. They'd had an indigent problem or something. And we were all fascinated by the fact that there was a police officer out there 24 hours a day. He just stood in a park, an armed police officer, and I'm thinking, well, that guy, that guy did something. He got caught doing something with the 
chief's wife or something. He had, he had a raw deal. And we kind of noticed him. And one day I was walking, I went over to the Denny's over here for breakfast and I was walking back and, and then walking down the street. I'm, I work on mostly action movies and I see somebody come running around the corner, dive across the hood of a car and do a little roll on the ground. People are running and diving through doorways and over cars and stuff. And it's just like work. I'm thinking, wow, they started shooting without me. I wonder if I'm late for work. A guy had, had armed himself with a couple of guns and put a duster on and called a cab and took him downtown and shot up the town. And there was a running gun battle going down the street. Now, this is how sick Alamon and I am. This is the, I, adrenaline doesn't even happen with me anymore where I came from. I'm watching, the police are running and speed loading their guns and shooting and he's shooting back and nobody's hitting anybody. I guess the guy shot a couple of people and he ran around the corner and a park ranger shot him right in the ass. <laughs> down he went. Now, I don't know if alcohol was involved in that story, but in my fantasy world it was. And, and if that guy is an AA, he'd be the one sitting on one butt cheek, you know? So, uh, but the other thing that was memorable about this, and listen very carefully to this, is that I got a phone call while I was here working on that movie. It was from my wife, and it was her one phone call from jail. And she's called up, and she was in California, and she says, I'm in jail. And I said, you know, they'll probably let you out tomorrow. Why don't you try and get a good night's sleep and hung up the phone? Now, that sounds like a guy working an Al-Anon program, which I did not have in my possession at that time, and I can prove it. Because the next phone call was to my family, who promptly went and got her out of jail, and they went and had a party and got drunk to celebrate her getting out of jail. So she wasn't done, I wasn't done. There was still some wreckage to do. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the family that I came from. Uh, I came from a family that was deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism. And you wouldn't have, if you looked at my family, even in the light of recovery, you would notice something very, very peculiar right away, and that is that my parents were not alcoholic. They didn't drink alcoholically. They actually didn't drink very often. When they did, they didn't do it very well, but they didn't drink very often. But alcoholism was in and around, surrounded all of the activities in my home. Uh, ours was the party house. Ours was a house that everybody came to. Saturday morning, first thing, people start showing up, and they just sat around watching, waiting for fun to break out. Because it would, it might be a rodeo, it might be a water fight in the house with the hose and everything, it might be a, a gang fight, it might be the police show, there's always something going on, and if you missed a weekend, next weekend you're going to have to hear about last weekend, so everybody just showed up and waited. You know, fun's going to break out here any minute. And then when they did have a party, there were huge bashes. We would do up for Halloween, we'd dig a graveyard in the front yard with headstones for everybody we knew, and you'd come down the driveway and Dracula and Frankenstein would swing out of the trees and land on the hood of your car, and you just couldn't afford to miss any time at our house. And uh, the people that came, by and large, all of them were alcoholic. Most of them were my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, my relatives, all around the family, but not my parents. And I had to come to you and Al-Anon for a little while to begin to understand. I'm sitting in Al-Anon meetings, I'm listening, I'm going, yeah, that, that happened in my house, and that happened. And I'm listening to people talking about growing up in the disease of alcoholism, but I can't put that, that's a round peg square hole problem. I can't put my parents in that. And then one day it occurred to me that both of my parents were adult children of alcoholics. And another, you know, one more gear clicked into place. And I began to understand that I was affected by alcoholism two generations down. I was affected by the presence of the alcoholics and the behavior of the alcoholics. And, and uh, as a house, they had secrets. We had, you know, there were plots going on and secret alliances. And it was way before it was popular on TV, you know. Uh, you know, mom checking on dad and checking his jeans to see if he really had money because he didn't have any. And her plotting with her girlfriends and my dad sneaking around behind her back. Or we'd go to the motorcycle races and we'd drop mom off and kiss her goodbye and go down and pick dad's girlfriend up the street and go to the motorcycle racing for the weekend. 
we got a garage full of motorcycles. I'm racing motorcycles from the time I'm very young. We've got a backyard full of horses, and we've got no money to put food on the table. There were all of these contradictions that happened in that house, and I was very confused there for a long time. What I, I'm going to describe to you how I was when I came out of there. I got to be 16, old enough to get a job and get a car and get out, and I left because the pressure of the things going on there got to be too much for me. I went out in the world and became immediately self-supporting. I was living in a house supporting my girlfriend and her alcoholic mom, and I was out in the world. It was a better place than I thought I'd come from. And uh, here's who I was. I, I'll tell you a couple of stories that, that you can maybe relate to. I'm first going to tell you about my, my problem resolution skills. There were times when there were great scary fights in our house. And in one particular, my stepmom, my dad had many wives, my, the wife after my mom and him got in a big fight. And she went and got the gun, his 45 caliber automatic, to shoot him. And she came into the kitchen, a long, narrow kitchen, and she pointed it at him, and they screamed a couple more times, and she pulled the trigger, and the gun didn't go off. She says, this thing's broke. My dad says, let me see that. <laughs> Snaps the safety off, squeezes around into that wall, which goes through into the neighbor's house. He goes, no, it's working fine. Hands it back to her. <laughs> Conflict resolution skills were big in our house, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, they did what you did. They had a good laugh about it. They had a big laugh, and everybody had a good time. They put the gun away, and for another time, there was times they were going to shoot the horse or shoot each other. And you know, mom was a—I've heard this described at Al-Anon, but it was—it was kind of what my my mom and my dad's other wives were. They were they were half naked nighty hood jumpers. You know, when he's heading down the driveway and they're on the hood and they're nightgown trying to stop him from going, trying to bulldog the car to a stop. There was a lot of that going on. So, I had skills. <laughs> And the guy that I came out of that house is, I can describe to you in a couple of stories. One of them I always tell, and it has pertinence that I'll get to in a minute, and that is that after a while, I, you know, I'm out living on my own. I'm still the guy that the family calls to come and get them when they're in trouble. You know, when they get in over their head, we better call Jack. Jack will fix it or he'll have the answer. I'm the answer man. I get a phone call in the middle of the night. It's about 2.30 in the morning. It's not unusual. Pick up the phone. No boundaries here. Just pick up the phone. Uh, there's been a fight at the bar. Your brother's been in a fight. Some guys crashed a window out of his van and tried to pull his girlfriend out. And he came home and got the shotgun and went back to the bar. And you need to go find him. And I do. Of course I do. It's what I do. It's my value as a human being is that I couldn't drink with them. I figured that early on. I tried. I couldn't do the things that they did. My brothers, my uncles would get drunk, get seven feet tall, win the fight, get the girl and forget. And we'd have to tell them tomorrow all of the heroics that they did. I would drink and get dumb and stupid and throw up and pass out and remember everything, which was awful. You guys don't know what a gift blackouts were. If you suffered from blackouts, you had a gift that I can't. I envy you greatly. So drinking didn't happen for me, but I could drive them. I could get them out of jail. I could go wait into the fight and get them out. And I, God help me, I did an awful lot of that. And I jumped out of bed. Of course I did. It wasn't even a question. Got in a car, went out. I have skills, stocking skills, actually. I found him in five minutes. First watering hole I checked. It was a pizza place that he went and drank at. And he's sitting in a parking lot. There's an empty parking lot in his van. He's got the shotgun popped up on the window. And all the windows are gone out of his van. There's not another car in sight. I pull up and I'm thinking, this is going to be an easy night in the hero business. There's no no enemy close by. We'll probably we'll get through the night without being bruised up too much. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm waiting for him to come back. The bars don't open for about four more hours. I think I'm still all right, so I take the gun away, and I get him calmed down. I unload the gun and put it in the trunk, and I'm getting ready to go home. And uh, as I'm heading out, he says, well, I'm going to go find them. And I 
I said, oh, well, you go with God, and he's off going to go find these guys. And on the way out of the driveway, we've got CB radios in our cars, and the CB radio pipes up, and he says, I found them. They're around the back. Okay, so I turned my little Mustang around, and I went around the side of this big shopping center, the pizza places in the middle, and he'd gone around that side, so I went around this side. And sure enough, we come around the back side, and in the middle of this parking lot is three cars. There's about... Six or eight young gentlemen having a three o'clock in the morning after the bar is closed beer under one of these big light standards and our radio pipes up and it says, I'm going in. If you are new to Al-Anon or don't actually speak Al-Anon, that translates to we're going in. <laughs> here he comes from the outside. Here I go from my side. Now I'm studying mathematics at the university. I was pretty good with mathematics and as I'm racing towards the scene of the soon-to-be crime, I'm trying to figure out what I, you know, brother's drunk. And, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my seven guys. You know, he's going to get out and get one guy real busy, and I'm going to have seven more to contend with, and I haven't yet administered any anesthetic to me. He's drunk, he won't remember tomorrow. He'll go, well, I get all these bruises, you know, I have to tell him. So I come up with a plan to survive. I'm a big planner, that's what I do, I plan, got a plan for everything, and as I'm racing in there, I decide, if I get that car going sideways fast enough and I slide in there broadside and hit one of those cars, then I might pin three or four of those guys between the chassis and give me a chance to get out of the car. Because Daddy taught me the most important time in any gang fight is when you're getting into or out of the car. We had values. And uh, I went across that parking lot, my little Mustang, a little 69 Mustang going pretty good, and I got it turned sideways. I've been racing motor cycle since I was eight. I raced my first automobile. I was a quarter midget racer when I was four. I make my living doing this today, doing driving, doing really silly things with cars. I got that car pretty much turned sideways and was on my way in there to do what I was going to do. My radio piped up one more time and said, I don't think that's them. <laughs> Wahoo, man. Windows in that little car filled up full elbows. I was driving my butt off trying not to run over anybody. I went by those guys with their beer going, what was that? And I kept going because I didn't really want to discuss my behavior with them at that particular moment. And I went on home. And, you know, I talked about this for a couple reasons. One of them is it wasn't too many years ago up in Berkeley, California, there was a guy got in a fight or something was going on, and he jumped the curb and he ran down a bunch of people in Berkeley. He killed a couple of them. And uh, he was in the press for a long time after that. There was a big trial went with it and stuff. I'm going to tell you right now, if I'd have done what I intended to do and I fully intended to do what I just said, the likelihood is somebody to duck, somebody to trip, I'd have slid in there and killed them. And, they, and that occurred to me on the way in and it did not stop me because I've got that blood is thicker than water mentality that the, you know, the family comes first. And he may be an axe murderer, but he's my axe murderer mentality. And I would have done exactly that. And I'm, and I'm standing before you today instead of sitting in a prison somewhere because of that exact, just the seconds and inches that we've heard about in AA. And, uh, I went out that driveway and I went home. The second reason that that is important is this, is that I wasn't a 17 year old kid devoid of any responsibility making stupid, stupid choices out there. I wish that I could tell you that I was. I, I was a 22-year-old young man, veteran, four years of the United States Marine Corps, where I was promoted uh, multiple times meritoriously. Uh, I was I was very handy to have around for drunken drill instructors and commanding officers because I fix it and I make them look good, and I got promoted a lot and did very well there. I got out of that bed with a family. I had a wife and I had two little children, and I was a sole form of support for that house. And I cannot tell you today to this day, because I don't really remember exactly, but the time frame is probably right, 
that I walked around the crib next to my bed wherein lie my daughter who was in a full arrest coma from a drowning accident, who had tubes sticking out of every part of her body, breathing monitor, heart monitor, required feeding through a tube in her stomach, trach tube care, and all the things, 24 hours a day. And I walked past that bed and out of that house with all of those responsibilities and never gave those a thought when I went to go take those actions because my head is, my priorities are upside down. Uh, the other thing that's, uh, and I'll talk about this for just a second, is that the biggest guilt and shame that I've ever had in my life was that during the year that my daughter lay in a coma, she passed away after a year. I'm a guy that's just described to you, I'm wading into the fight. I'm, I'm front row of the motorcycle race. I'm in the race car. I'm do, I do silly stuff for a living that would horrify most of you that they pay me for and I'm, that I'm good at. That I'm this macho, brave guy that you should, you know, should be afraid of. You should recognize I'm this macho guy. That I couldn't be in the house with my daughter with those tubes sticking out of her body. I couldn't do it. I would have a panic attack and remove myself from the house. For the year that my daughter lived in a coma, by my side of the bed, I vacated that house at every opportunity and stayed gone. For work, for whatever, I stayed gone. I'd go to work, they'd be done with me and say, you can go home, and I would stay till they were done because they could not go to my home. You can't fix the guilt that comes with a problem like that cannot be fixed by any method I've ever encountered in my life except for the method contained in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous which were so generously given to Alamo. It's not possible. That was a secret. That, that was one of those ones that was not going to go to a sponsor in the fourth step, was going to go to the grave. You can't fix it, so why should I tell you about it? And that's not true because it's, I've been healed on that area in, in a ways I can't even don't even have time to tell you, but uh, I'll do as much of it as I can. That marriage wasn't... Uh, didn't do too well. I stayed gone even after my child was was uh, had passed away, and I didn't go to the gravesite. I didn't acknowledge her death. I didn't do the grief thing. I put it off. I just pretend it, it, the uh, denial thing is very very potent and very strong. Unfortunately, with things like grief, they never go away. They wait, and I had to do that grief process in recovery years later. And I did it with with your help because it wasn't possible for me to do it by myself. I went out in the world and I did some things that I used to judge my father harshly for. I shared with you a little bit about my dad. I went out and I did a lot of womanizing, a lot of tearing it up, a lot of acting like I was single. I'd go on movie locations and I, you know, I was there for the game and for the chase and for having a good time and I couldn't go home and didn't want to go home and I created a lot of wreckage and I met a lady in Page, Arizona that uh, was to change all of that eventually. It was my beautiful wife, Leslie, who sends you her greetings. She's at home with the with the children this weekend, and I am here at Her Good Graces. People have thanked me for coming this weekend. The gratitude, if you owe it to anybody, you owe it to my family because we've got a lot of stuff going on right now that they still allow me to come and do my commitments even though they really need me home, and i really, really rather be there. I come and do this because this is what you guys have taught me to do all these years since I've come to Al-Anon. And uh, Leslie and I met on location, and uh, it was kind of a wild and woolly, fiery romance. I knocked her out with a Frisbee. Well, I didn't, I, you know, this is, this is an Al-Anon, a guy and I were playing Frisbee, very busy in the movie business, important stuff we're doing, we're throwing a 185 gram professional Frisbee around base camp and Clarence throws it at me and goes way over my head and is heading for the door of this van. About that time the door of the van swings open and all these extras are getting out with big hair and tight jeans, it was a real high class movie, you know, and uh, I hollered, look out! And it, you know what? To this day, that's the only direction my wife has ever taken from me because she did. She looked out and that frisbee hit her right there. 
knocked her back into the van, prone on the seat, out cold. She was hung over when it hit her. It didn't take much to push her back over the edge. And I went over and apologized for a frisbee I didn't throw. I'm going, you know, are you all right? Can I get you an ice bag? Can I get the medic? Are you sure you're all right? And she's going, no, no, no. She's hung over, you know, not happy. No, leave me alone. I said, is there anything I can do? She said, maybe you can buy me a drink someday. It's my beautiful wife, Leslie. God was working in my life a long time before I was listening, you think? <laughs> so one thing led to another. We changed location. She went with me. And then my, my, my real wife flew in and she was flying out. So I went to the airport, dropped Leslie off and picked the wife up. I figured why make two trips to the airport? And Leslie, you know, <laughs> seconds and inches making it work for me. And I went back to California, and Leslie was on a series of geographics coming from Omaha, Nebraska, on her way to California, and she moved to California, and we saw each other. Uh, we were actually on our first date in California, was to the emergency ward. She called me up. My wife was out of town. I was on my way up to meet her and got lost and called her and got lost again. And I'm doubling back to go figure out where I got lost at, and there's this big wreck in this intersection. And there's a Honda car buried in the grill of a full-size Oldsmobile. It was a head-on collision in an intersection up in Palmdale, California. And they got, man, there's ambulances and fire trucks, and it's very busy. This blonde is in this car, is not breathing, and they're cutting the car apart to get her out. And, there's, and I hear the officer saying, we don't know who she is. She doesn't have any ID. And I knew who she was. It was Leslie. And I went off with her to the hospital, and she quit breathing in the hospital. Now, she's died once in the car. She dies in the hospital. I run out and get a nurse. They bring the crash carts in to get her going again. And uh, when they got her heart started, she comes, her eyes opened up. She rolled her head over on the gurney. She looked straight at me. And she said, let me go. Can you imagine that? I could not wrap my mind around that for many years after that, what I had seen. I know because of you and because I regularly attend open AA meetings that what I was seeing was a little slice in the door opening of what it's like, the pain that it must be to be an active alcoholic in your disease, that she would rather die than pay the price for one more, one more car wreck, one more mistake, one more problem, one more rescue from her dad who was a rescuer for, for most of her life, that dying looked good to her and opening her eyes and seeing me was not good news. That was to become a theme in our relationship later on. They figured out in this little hospital that she doesn't have any insurance and they asked her to leave. She's died twice. Her windpipe is crushed. She's got broken bones. They set none of her bones. They put a neck brace on her, which was very nice of them, I thought. Put her in a wheelchair and loaded her in my car. They said, we hope you live near a hospital because she's not doing very well. I said, oh, thank you for sharing. Now, she was living with this phantom uncle. We still debate whether or not he was real or not. I don't know where he is. She's drunk and hurt, and she doesn't know where he is either, and we're discussing our options. Well, what are we going to do? She says... Maybe you can take me to a hotel. I thought about that for about five, eight seconds. I said, nah, pat her on her hand. She's never forgot that. Pat her on her hand. I said, honey, it'll be all right. I'll just take you home. You all forget I got a wife and family at home? You all think about that and get back to me? Called the wife up, said, got a friend in a car wreck, bringing her home. She met us in the driveway. She grabbed Leslie's ankles. I got her by the armpits and carried her in. Leslie's been sharing for 17 years at AA that I dropped her coming through the door into the house that first time. I might have. I was a little nervous bringing a girlfriend home to meet the wife and the kids. <laughs> if you just came in late, I am not the AA speaker. 
Y'all didn't see a girl on the program, thought there was no al speaker this weekend, didn't you? Now you can't get out and do it gracefully, so you're stuck. Brought her in later on the bed, in bad shape, really thought she might not live. We watched her for a couple of days, and she started coming around, got her to the doctor, and they started setting her bones and treating her for her injuries and stuff. It set up six months of some very interesting living at my house. Big, happy family, Leslie called it. She had a new mom and a new dad. That would be me. New brother, new sister, new dogs. Everything is good. After about a week, she starts drinking again. After we'd had an argument about her being able to drink on medication, she had such a... I'm having a little glass of wine. I might have a goblet and half of it and leave some, but she still just snarls when she thinks about that. It's a terrible waste of alcohol. She said, I'll be having some of that. I said, no, you won't. Says right here on your medication, you can't drink when you're doing this. My girlfriend had such a tantrum in front of my wife that I gave her the whole bottle. <laughs> she was so well behaved that my wife and I both made sure she had her own bottle every night at dinner. It was the only time during her drinking career that she actually stopped for any length of time and she was on heavy meds, which got her bought. And, uh, after a while, it's, you know, my wife is confiding in her there may be problems in our marriage and my girlfriend is giving my wife pointers on how to put the marriage back together and I'm telling my girlfriend to stay out. I'm still okay with this. This is just drama like I grew up in. I can, I deal with this. It got a little more complicated and we started going on double blind dates together. My wife would find some guy or call some friend of ours and we'd all go out to dinner at a nice restaurant and they got tablecloths there and all sitting around having a glass of wine and somebody just kicked their shoe off and got their foot up my pant leg rubbing my leg. And my highest ambition in life is it's not the other guy because I don't have a clue which one's doing it. <laughs> just smiling and making special eye contact with everybody going on there. <laughs> so Texas comes into the story about this time again. And uh, Leslie got a job offer. She got one off to go find some work, and she got a job offer in California, one in Texas, and we decided Texas would be okay. And she actually moved to Houston for about six months to do. Uh, she was in the restaurant and hotel business, and she went down to Bennigan's to to study to be management at Bennigan's. Her story is that she goes somewhere for six months. She'd do good for three months, bad for three months, and they would either fire her or promote her and move her on. And she got to the end of six months down here. Well, while she was gone that we finally set about dissolving that marriage and my wife and I separated and Leslie was calling me up at night and she finally called and asked if she could come back to California and I drove straight to Houston, Texas from California with my foster brother and picked her up and drove her straight home to live happily ever after. Yahoo! My wife had been a barroom drinker and a blackout drinker. Every single night at the bar, every single night of blackout, every morning woke up someplace new with somebody new doing something new. For some reason when she came to me, she decided that she didn't want to do that, that her meal ticket would disappear or whatever, and she moved her drinking into the kitchen. And I got to be, I had the privilege of being with my wife during the last year and a half of her active drinking. And I really didn't know what I was confronted with. I just thought I really made a terrible mistake, you know. I'd come home from weeks or months on the road, the conquering hero, and come through the door, and it's hellfire and brimstone at my house. I'm, going, I'm not even four feet inside the door, and I'm Hitler, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And what she will tell you, if you've ever had the privilege of hearing her, her do her AA talk, is that when I was gone, she could drink the way she wanted to and needed to. She could drink on the bathroom floor where the tile was cool, where it was crawling distance to the necessities. She didn't have to look good or be good or put on any kind of a front. And when I got home, she had to maintain some act of that being normally, you know, relatively sober until we could have, I could see her consume a couple glasses of wine and then she would pass out and black out and I'd carry her to bed. And it went on for a long time that way. 
And uh, towards the end, she did tell me that she had a problem. It was actually, she embarrassed me on a movie that I was on. She poured the director's wine in his lap while she was pointing out to him the finer points of directing a movie, this big movie director. My wife, the catering director, is telling the movie director how to do his job. Thought that was, I grounded her, sent her to our room. And uh, we set about playing bottle tag for a few months after that. And I went off on location. And she finally got done. You know, she wasn't done until she got done. It wasn't her time until the day that it was her time. And she began, she tried to commit suicide by consuming alcohol. She tried to drink enough to not wake up. And she kept waking up pissed off that she hadn't died. And she finally called uh, a recovery place and checked herself in as an outpatient while I was gone. And I came back to find her new in recovery. And uh, there was a lot that went on with that. I went down there to find out what they were telling her because now I've been trying to help her get sober for about six months now uh, in earnest and it's not working. And she's going to this place, you know, three, four nights a week and she's not drinking and I can't figure it out. I'm giving her the, the, kiss, the kiss sniff test that just to check and she's not drinking. I checked her every night. She'd come home from the restaurant, give her the, give her the test. And I'm, I'm just starting to get my first resentment in, in sobriety is that she's doing it. So I went down there and I sat in about half of one of their meetings and they're talking about stuff and I really got peeled because I'm listening to them talk around the room. And they're all telling her the same stuff I was telling her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sucks, huh? And she can do it because they're telling her because they have something in common with her that I do not. And I began to learn a lesson that it was later to be solidified when I came to Al-Anon that of all of the people in the world that could help my wife and her sobriety, I was the only one who could. Of all of my family who I dearly love, who are out there today as we speak, I believe dying of the disease of alcoholism, there are many people on the planet that can give them experience, strength, and hope and can help them. I am the only one that cannot because I am too close. I've had two brothers come briefly to AA. My older one has now disappeared. We have no idea where he is. He, he showed up at my Alamon meeting, newly sober in AA. He's from my father's first marriage, and I had never met him until he was even 18, and I barely knew him. And I walked into my men's stag Almond meeting on speaker night and he was there with his wife. He went briefly to some meetings and then stopped going to meetings. He went with us for a while and, and now nobody knows where he is. My huge family can't find him for weddings, funerals or whatever. I have no idea if he's even alive or not. Uh, a very talented musician, a terrific man and dying of alcoholism. My other brother came briefly and, and, uh, you know, my wife's new in sobriety. I'm new in recovery. We started trying to 12 step the family, which really just pushed him away hard. They began to hide their drinking from us at family functions and stuff, it got to be a lot of pressure that, that I put on because I went to step 12 before step 1. I don't recommend that. And uh, years later, after I quit that, one of my brothers actually came to AA with us after my dad died. And he said one night at coffee after the meeting, he said, you know why I wanted to come to AA? And I says, I haven't got a clue. He said, because I want what you have. Because I stopped pushing him. I stopped trying to show him. I stopped trying to tell him about his disease. For God's sakes, he's an alcoholic. He knows he's an alcoholic. He knows what alcohol does to him. He doesn't need me, a non-alcoholic, to point that out to him. He's very well aware. I've heard that at enough AA meetings that I learned that lesson. And I, today I just love them the way they are. I don't make, I don't go into business with them. <laughs> and I don't make myself a victim to them. If we go to family functions away from home, I've got a hotel nearby that my wife and I can go to or escape and go to a meeting. And I can, and I get along with them fine. I love, I love my brothers and my sisters. I have had this fantasy for all of my recovery that one day one of them is going to accidentally fall through the doors of AA. Maybe a nudge from the judge. Maybe something. And just screw it up for all the rest of them, you know, because they're very, very close. And it occurred to me one day 
that, you know, the way I came to Al-Anon was done. I mean, I came to Al-Anon done. I came in willing to do whatever lame thing you told me to do, and I did a lot of lame stuff. It sounded really stupid to me, and I did it anyway. Like, you know when your group does a skit, if you're the only guy at the Al-Anon meeting, guess what part you're going to play? You're going to be the alcoholic in the skit. <laughs> Aren't you? They're going to, you're going to be the alcoholic. And it was the lamest thing I ever saw, and I did it because I had no other answers. I don't have a way to live my life. I'm done trying to fix it. I have one more answer, I'm still out there. And uh, I did those things. But And I realized one day that if one of them got sober and came to AA, they could do like I see a lot of people doing AA and Al-Anon. They might come hang around the edge. They might be back in the inventory section. There's no guarantee that they're going to come do what I did. I came to Al-Anon and got right in the middle. My wife went to AA and got right square in the middle. She wasn't given them a choice. Her sponsor was AA's answer to Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden sat up front. Leslie sat up front. She had a chair there and her butt better be in it every week, you know. We we got in the middle. And you know what? They may come and they may hang around the edges and come in and out. I don't know that. That fantasy finally had to go away. And, uh, you know, I, I have a prayer list today for people who can't get sober because that's the only thing I can do for them. And uh, I, got in, I went to Al-Anon a year and a half after my wife got sober. Her and Lizzie Borden were trying to get me to go to meetings, and I was doing them. You know, I can be led, but I can't be pushed. You know, I'm not the one with the problem. She's the one with the problem. You leave me alone. And I would call her sponsor up and rat her out about this and that. And, you know, I really don't think she did that second step very well. I was thinking you better talk to her about that, Pat. And Pat would just thank me for calling. And Leslie's calling every day asking Pat for permission to leave. And Pat's saying, you know, we don't make any major decisions in our first year of sobriety, but you're extra sick. For you, it's three years. I loved Pat. She was, she was mean to my wife. Leslie invites her over for dinner one time to get her to meet me so she could get permission to leave. And her and Pat went off in the kitchen after dinner. I know I was a prize in those days. And she said, what do you think? Pat says, I don't like him either. <laughs> she said, but you made him your God. You live with him. Pat came to dinner one other time. It was after I'd gone to Al-Anon and my wife was dying from another disease, another another addiction that she had. And we sat at dinner and Pat didn't even wait till after dinner. She looked across at me and she said, I don't think that you should have to live like this and I think you should throw her out. My wife sponsored. I loved her. <laughs> I loved her. She scared people. But I loved her to pieces. Only I wasn't done. You know, we're not done any sooner than the alcoholic. I didn't get to Al-Anon one day ahead of my time. They couldn't have made me go a day ahead of the time. I couldn't have gotten my sober, my wife sober a day ahead of the day that it was her time to get sober. That's the way it is for us. I have to remember that. That I, I, you know, you guys ask me to speak every once in a while and I do a lot of service commitments and I start to accumulate knowledge and I'm a, I'm an avid AA history buff. I get to do workshops and stuff. I did one last week. And with all of that accumulated knowledge, I can never be a source for my wife. She has her source. Her woman's meeting, her sponsor, her sponsees, her sponsor's sponsor. She's got that place to go for answers. And as soon as I cross that line to try and do that, I go from being a husband to being a daddy. I don't want to be her daddy. I want to be her husband. My defective character is to go back to that daddy role, and I don't want to go there. And that's a constant battle for me, constant application of the steps, being of service, going to meetings and not forgetting and working with others is the things I've been taught to do, and they keep me from I get to be this size in my marriage. It isn't like this, which is where we go to when my defects of character kick in. Uh, I got very busy in Al-Anon. I got a sponsor that was real involved in service. She may, I had a woman sponsor. I'm the only guy at the meetings, you know. I, I go to the first couple of meetings. I snuck out. I didn't want her and Lizzie Borden to have any satisfaction in knowing I was going to go to a meeting. I, I got a directory. I got 
at that on the sly and snuck out to my first meetings and I walked into the room, so I didn't look any more like anybody in the room than I did when I went to that recovery unit, and they'd taken me in with the other wives. Just us wives went into the room to get a little talk or getting help for ourselves. And I couldn't identify visually or otherwise with who was in the room. And I snuck out to that first meeting, and there were eight little blue-haired ladies in there in a circle. And I went there because I'd been, my wife had tricked me into going to AA. I'd started to hear about recovery in AA. I was going to AA speaker meetings by then for about six months every week with my wife, and I began to learn about the disease of alcoholism. I recommend that highly, and I began to hear the message of recovery from the podiums. I began to learn about recovery, and I wanted what they had, and I wasn't sure how to get it. And I went to Alan and these eight little blue-haired ladies are sitting in a circle, and they've been waiting for me, you know. i got to tell you, I've been around Alan a little over 15 years, and I'm absolutely sure that all eight of the little blue-haired ladies were younger then than I am now, but it was my perception when I came through the door. But I began to hear pieces of my story, and I knew I was in the right place. And I've, I've been going to meetings from that day to this at least three, four, five meetings a week ever since, and one AA meeting, sometimes a lot more. And uh, I got I went to my first meeting of the home group. I rode my bicycle up there. I'm an avid long-distance cyclist. And now, see, I've been going to AA, and I've been, they've been doing this. Any newcomers in the room, the hands would go up. Sometimes they go up month after month after month. And that doesn't look too good to me, and I don't want to be new anywhere. My ego doesn't want me to be new anywhere. So I go to Al-Anon. I get there before you're there. I set up the chairs. I'm busy when you get there, so you leave me alone. I sit in the front row, happy and well-adjusted. <laughs> fine, I'm fine. Leave me alone, fine. And you leave me alone, and then I'm the last one to leave. And I'm showing up at this. Now, I've got to have a plan, right? I want to be an anonymous newcomer guy at an Al-Anon meeting where there's 40 women and me. My plan is I show up in my roadie spandex heat shrink to fit no secrets from the world roadie bicycle suit to be an anonymous guy in a room with 40 women. So I'd show up with my clothes, my street clothes in a pack, and I'd change into my street clothes, and I'd be dressed when you got there. And when the last one of you left, I'd get back in my roadie suit and go do my ride. And two months later, I had my first spiritual awakening in Al-Anon. I recognized that that was my seat, that nobody was going to come to me and say, you're a guy, you can't be here. Nobody was going to come to me and say, she's sober, what the hell are you doing here? Nobody was going to come and say that I hadn't earned my chair in Al-Anon, and I left the clothes at home, and I showed up in my spandex suit. And I haven't been a newcomer yet. This is two months in. And this lady, this redheaded lady friend of mine, Patty M., walked up to me and she said, patted me on my spandex butt. She said, you keep coming back, honey. <laughs> Got that lady sponsor. Every time a job came up, in or out of the group, her hand was the first one in the air and I got the job. I thought there was something wrong with her. She started jumping out of her chair and I started going places and out. And I did commitments at the meeting. I didn't, they found out I didn't want to talk to you or touch you, so they made me a door greeter. You know what a door greeter does at Al-Anon? You guys are shaking in AA, but we're hugging in Al-Anon. you got to hug all of them coming through the door. I don't even want to hold your hand and do the Lord's Prayer, which I'm horrified by at my first AA meeting, by the way. That I, oh, meeting's over, ready to leave, and they pulled me back in and made me pray against my will, you know. <laughs> Hated that. So they made me a door greeter. I got to meet all of you. I got commitments at the meeting, and I went from, this is the secret. If you're new in AA or Al-Anon, you want to figure out how to get from out there to in here, Get a job at the meeting. And they don't give you a job. They don't think you're worthy of a job. Make your own job up. The ashtrays are your job. Or the coffee cups. Or setting up the chairs. Or breaking them down. Or sweeping the floors after they leave. Give yourself a job. Get a job at the meetings. You will go from being on the outside of the group to being on the inside. You won't even know how when it happened. It happened so fast. And I got jobs now. And I started going places. I started doing service outside the group. I wound up 
five years in Al-Anon. I'm the, I'm the Al-Anon chair for Southern California. We've got 430 meetings in our inner group. We've got three permanent employees. I don't know crap about the traditions or the concepts, and they put me at the big desk, you know, uh, where all the letters come. You know, we write letters. <laughs> People are not always happy if you do things in service in Al-Anon and AA, and they have opinions about them they share with you. I had to start going to step study meetings and tradition and concept study meetings to learn how to do my jobs in Al-Anon. By the time I learned them, they get me out of there because as soon as I figure it out, I might fix something and really mess it up. <laughs> And I've been doing it from that day to this. My sponsor told me she sicked me on the newcomer guys. I'm the only guy in the meeting every week. She's, a guy would come in. She says, you know, if you stay here and do this deal, guys are going to show up and they're going to stay. And they're going to ask you to sponsor them so you better get busy on the steps. Well, I don't want to be responsible for somebody else's failure, and I got busy. And they start asking you to sponsor them. You start scooting on up the road so you can stay ahead of them a little bit. And uh, and I, those meetings that I went to then, I still go to now, almost all of them. I think one of them is closed. Those meetings you show up early, it's all gone. By the time the meeting starts, a third to a half of the meeting is guys, and we all sit in a group. It's kind of a little voting block we have over there. I sit down and they go on both sides of me. <laughs> a coup has happened at those meetings. We got a lot of guys, in there. and I have I've changed sponsors a couple of times since then. That sponsor has left Al-Anon and moved out of the state. I had a, a very loving man sponsor with over 20 years of sobriety in AA, who was also in Al-Anon for a while, and now my sponsor is our immediate past delegate for Southern California, which means. When I call them up whining that I have too many service commitments and they want me to do another one, I think it's enough now. I, you know what that answer is going to be when your sponsor is the ex-delegate? Sorry. Put your hand in the air. Stand up for the job. Ain't your business. God will decide if you need that job or not. And I do that even when my, I think that my job and my family is all going to be too much. I'm going to bring you up to date about what's happening now. I think that that's the most important thing I can do as a speaker is tell you what it's like right now. Sometimes we forget that. Uh, my wife and I are both very busy. We sponsor a lot of people. We have sponsors who have sponsors. Uh, we're, we're at meetings all the time. My wife sponsored a woman for five years in and out of AA. And she's drunk and sober, drunk and sober. By the time she was 29 years old, she called us up and said she was done. She was homeless, hymnless, carless, moneyless. She drank herself out of everything. She's on the street at 29 years old with four kids. And my wife had seen one of them born and one of them as a newborn. She'd been with her for a long time. And, and uh, she asked if we could get her in somewhere. And my wife got her a, a bed at a halfway house down in Laguna Hills, California. And she was on her way out of town to speak at a convention and asked me if I'd take her there. I'm an Al-Anon going on AA 12-step call. I had a little philosophical problem with that. You guys have really convinced me that I've got no business doing that. And I said, I will go if you send one of your sponsees. And we went over there to get her and got her a bottle to get her in the car. That's new 12-step work for an Al-Anon like me. Here's your bottle. Come on, in the car, huh? <laughs> I leave that to the women in AA. That's just fine with me. I like to watch it, but I don't want to do it. It was a good thing that my friend Kit, who's in AA, came with me because apparently it was clothing optional day that day when we showed up. And Kit got her dressed and we got her in the car and took her down and she consumed most of the bottle and I carried her in unconscious and laid her on the bed in this place. And uh, I know enough about the disease of alcoholism to know that I can't fix it and I know enough to have compassion for an alcoholic instead of anger at their decision to drink. Because alcoholics drink because that's, they don't have a choice not to drink. We forget that. This progressive fatal disease is not something we get up in the morning and say, I think I'll commit suicide today and pick up that drink. It's a choice that's removed from the active alcoholic and I carried her in later on the bed and this woman who's a resident of the house, she's probably got about eight minutes of sobriety, comes out with a little clipboard to ask all the questions, and she's unconscious on the bed. 
I know it's silly, but we have to ask all the questions whether she answers or not. And they go down the thing. When have you had your last drink? And I'm saying, front door. <laughs> you know, the bottle's on the porch. <laughs> we had our last one sitting there on the porch just for old time's sake. And nightcap there. She goes down the list, no response, no response, no response. She's out cold. She gets to the last question. She says, why are you here? She opened her eyes for just a second, rolled her head over and through cracked lips, looked at the woman and said, because I want to get better and passed out. And I believed her. I believed her then and I believe her now that she really wanted to get better. She wanted that. You know, the, the joke, the, 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 the cruel jokes that we talk about, you know, how do you know an alcoholic's telling lies because her lips are moving? I don't buy into that crap. I believe that she meant, she meant that with every fiber in her body. I believe that when my wife told me she would never drink again, she meant that. She did at the time. She just didn't have the choice to do it because she didn't have the tools to do it. And uh, we left her there and we had a lot of hope for her. We had taken the kids to relatives and neighbors and farmed them all out. Now, I've described to you, I had a son at the time that my daughter passed away who was sleeping in the other room. He's now 32 years old and has gifted me with some beautiful grandchildren. And uh, my wife and I got together and she didn't want children and I didn't do children well and didn't want to do it again, and we agreed early on kids weren't going to happen. And you know the biological clock thing comes on, and you don't have control over that. And she decided she was going to change my mind. We nearly lost our marriage over that. And uh, she, I got her a puppy. <laughs> got out of that with a puppy, and uh, we went along for a long time. And she got to be okay with the fact that we were going to have kids of our own. And she began to treat my son as if he was her son also. And we don't we don't distinguish in the family anymore. And and my son calls her mom. And uh, one of the kids couldn't stay where they were anymore. My wife is going two, three times a week, two and a half hours away with her big book to do the steps of this woman. And she's coming back going, you know, five years, I've never seen hope. I see hope now. I think it's going to be all right. And when these kids couldn't stay where they were, my wife and I had a discussion about the little one, uh, the, well, the second little one, there was a baby also, uh, about where she could stay. And I, she said something about bringing her to the house, but she knew that wasn't a possibility. Out of my mouth came, not an answer that I would do. I said, why don't you bring her here? I want you to bring your older sister because they're close in age. It'd be good for them. It's a few weeks. I think that they both should come together. Because they'd been displaced. They'd lived with an aunt for two years. They'd spent most of their life away from their mom. When they were with mom, they knew what drunk was. They know what passed out is. They know it's important to get a meal before mom gets her first drink in the morning because that's it for the day. They know more about alcoholism than any child should ever have to know. And uh, we brought those kids home. Mom could stay in the halfway house for up to six months if she wanted. She got out after three weeks. She's a fast healer, you know. She's the times that she's done this before. She's 29 years old. She snaps back quick. In a week, she looks like you know a 29-year-old virgin in pigtails. She's ready to go. She gets jobs that she's not even qualified. She can talk her way into stuff, and we figure she get on her feet pretty quick if she can stay sober. We got her into a room with somebody that was one of my wife's sponsees who couldn't afford to have her there, and we're paying under the table, and we're trying we're trying to figure out where to get her a car so she can get to work. And he comes back, and he takes her to the bar to celebrate her. Her new sobriety with with margaritas, and they're off and running. Now we got kids. They're talking. They're saying things like, "Can we call you mom and dad?" Going, "Whoa, sign of the cross." No, you have a mom and dad. Perfectly fine, thank you. You know that began to change as time went on. That began to change, and it became. They began doing things like beating each other up and going to jail. And he would get out. She's in a halfway house because they want to hide him from her because she'll he'll kill her. And the next day they're calling up talking about coming to get the kids. So we went to court and filed for a guardianship. And we fought for a guardianship to protect the children. And uh, 
We waited a year after the guardianship was awarded, and they came and visited twice and never called on the phone, no Christmas, no birthdays, no nothing. And we filed to adopt them, and it, it set up a huge battle, year-and-a-half court proceeding, a six-week trial, six weeks. My wife was on the stand for six days. Everything that she ever shared as an alcoholic woman, working with another alcoholic woman in terms of what she had done, came back through the attorneys as accusations. And my wife had heard her fifth step. She knew her fifth step. She could have got on the stand and gave as good as she got. And we talked to people in AA that gave us advice about what to do. And she sat up there and she said, yep, I did that. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. And yes, I'm sober today for 17 years. At that time, it was 15 and a half years. And after a year and a half court proceeding, the judge granted us permission to adopt those little girls. And he made us a family two days later. Now, when my wife and I would have those talks about kids, she would say things to me like, you're in recovery now, you'd be a good dad. And I would say, that might be true, but I don't want to know and I don't want to find out. My memories as a father were not good. I'm a selfish and self-centered man. I, just, I subscribe to the big book. I'm a big book Al-Anon. That describes me in every way except for the al to alcohol, I am described in the big book. Those kids weren't about me. That wife wasn't about me. I'm about me. And I didn't have time for them or for her, and I was, and it was not a good experience. And I knew I, I was afraid I would do that again. And we, I'd say, I'd, I've done it. I don't want to do it again. I've buried a child. I don't want to do that again. And, and I'm going to tell you right now that it's been, these kids have been with us a little over five years. We adopted them a year and a half ago, and I'm a good dad today. I'm a really good dad today. I'm a good husband today. I'm a good brother. I'm a good son. I'm, I'm good at the things that I am in my world only because of you. These are not tools that I had when I got here. My wife's only tool for living was alcohol until she got to AA. Her first year of sobriety was more miserable than her last year of drinking times 10 because they removed her only tool for living by taking away alcohol. It took a while to acquire those tools. Those tools for living worked for her and they worked for me. It's been a long struggle with this. These children came with special needs. The older one is ADD. And uh, she couldn't read. She'd read a one-page story and she couldn't tell you what was on it. And uh, we took her to get some help and, and started her on a really small dose of a medication and it was like a light switch went on. Her first book was Little Women. For God's sake, she read the whole thing in about two days, devoured it, and told us every day what was in it, who was in it, and what they did. And she's a straight-A student. Day after tomorrow, I'm going to her school. She's being awarded Student of the Year at her school. She doesn't even know yet. I'm making sure I'm going to be home for that. They want me to go to Chicago to work. I was supposed to go do a job in Chicago. And, and I told them, no, I need to be there for my daughter. And, but the young one has got more severe problems. Mom, as she progressed through, the children began uh, more liberally to apply alcohol and drugs during the pregnancy. And the little one has problems. She's bipolar and she's ADHD. And you can't treat one and not have adverse effects on the other. And we've gone through the doctors and the psychiatrists and the drug regimes and stuff. And my wife and I are struggling to keep our marriage together. This is an enormous amount of pressure to have a really sick, emotionally sick child. And uh, together as a team, which is what has happened. See, this can drive you together or drive you apart. It's a coin toss. A lot of marriages don't survive stuff like this. 
Fortunately, because of the tools of the program, has had more of a tendency to drive us together than apart, and it's been a tough, tough struggle. And we went together as a team, and we presented to the Los Angeles City School District to get an IEP judgment on her, and we failed the first time, and the second time we did together because I didn't participate the first time and got her some help. She's going to have a special school and transportation and counseling and wraparound. We can get her anything that, that we want. When we left, these people at the IEP, these professionals, whose job it is to try and keep the money from going anywhere, gave us anything we wanted and were crying when we left. You know, these are the skills I've learned with you guys. I learned conflict, conflict resolution at, at business meetings where you all fight about the stupidest crap. You know, you go in there and I've been in a meeting and they make it nice. And you go to the business meeting and man, people get real excited about stuff. And I'm going, oh man, it's not safe anymore. I can't stay. And then we, then the conscience of our higher power expresses himself through the group conscience. And we say the Lord's Prayer and all go to coffee together and we hug each other. You guys taught me how to do that stuff. You taught me how to do, to, uh, you guys gave me the tools to eulogize my father when he passed away. One of the biggest fears I had was I was going to get up as the oldest son and tell y'all what a rotten son of a bitch my dad was. You guys gave me the tools to get up and share and do something I was terrified of my whole life because I knew that day was coming. Where we are right now is we're in flux. My little girl this week went into the hospital. She may be in there a week or two. She's being screened by some of the best in the world. The best in the world. And we're going down there every day to visit her. And I don't want to be here with you. This is, I do this because it's been beat into me that I do this because I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to give back what was given to me. Your slogan for this weekend. I have to freely give what was given to me. I'd rather be back there even if it's looking on the wrong side of the glass with a wire in it to be with my family. Because my wife and my family need me, and I'll be back there. And I get daily reports about that. Um, I don't know where that's going to go. You know, I, when when Bob first contacted me, he sent me an email. He says, "So how long have you been on the speaking circuit?" And I don't consider myself a circuit speaker. I'm more of a serial speaker. Because <laughs> God keeps giving me new stuff to share. You know, every share is a damn cliffhanger. I'm getting tired of it. I want the old story just to stay there. No. No new spiritual growth, you know. Just let me get the punchline in and get out of here and shake a few hands and God keeps giving me new stuff. And I don't know where this is going to wind up, but I'm going to tell you this, that I'm going to get through it. I, I got an overwhelming sense of well-being about three four weeks ago standing on the beach. I was working on a job. It was a rock video or something. And I'm, my daughter's head's caving in. And my wife and I are spinning out. And we're fighting doctors and lawyers and stuff to try and get her some help. And I'm standing on the beach. He's going, God, is, I don't know if it's going to be okay, man. Is it going to be okay? I don't know. And there's this big cliff by Magoo Rock in California. If you've ever been there, it's a huge cliff. And there's a rock on this side and a little bay. And I was just standing there thinking about that. A school of dolphins came around the corner. About 10, 12 of them with a couple of young ones being kind of mushed along by the parents. And get this overwhelming sense that, you know what, no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. And I called my wife. I says, I can't tell you how I know. But it's going to be okay. As long as I stay close to you, as long as my seat's in the middle, my seat's really up front. I don't belong at a microphone. I'm front row taking notes, God. You know, I'll come do this, but I belong there listening to you guys. The speakers I've heard this weekend already have touched my heart. That's as high as you go as a speaker. And my, my place is in the front row. When I get back to mon Monday, I'll be in my Monday night meeting. With the stuff going on, I'll do my stuff. I'll get to my meeting because that's what I'll do. All day long, my sponsees will call me, and they won't start off with how are you doing, and we won't go there. We'll Talk about them. And a couple of them will make a mistake and say, how are you doing before we start? 
And then we're going to talk about me for a while. And you know, that's okay. That's how you know they've been around a while and they might get to stay. My life has been immensely improved, made immensely better by my association with you. I hope to always have a chair in the middle of you. Thank God for Al-Anon and thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.